Hello, Theologizers. Welcome to episode number two of the Theo Bros podcast. As promised, this week we will be hitting Calvinism. Dun, dun, dun. Cue the Wilhelm scream. Let's do this. There's going to be a lot of screams in this episode. Be prepared. It warrants a lot of screams. There's a lot of disturbing things about Calvinism. True that. So, uh, so how are you doing today, Brett, before we get into this utter chaos that is Reformed theology? Doing pretty good. It's uh, Friday, so just got done working. Feeling good. Got the weekend ahead of me. Perfect time to relax, little happy hour action, and just start critiquing the crap out of Calvinism. It's going to be true good that, times. True that. Well, I'm ready to go. I'm on a uh, Sour Patch Sugar High right now. So every one of those little Sour Patches is assuredly a vessel made for my wrath. Yeah. I have my caffeinated beverage to give me that extra kick, extra passion. Yeah, the Brettmeister is always caffeinated when he busts out the critique. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, enough of that. Let's get into it. Here it is, episode number two of the Theo Bros podcast, all about Calvinism. Let's start this thing. Okay. I figured we'd start with, if you want to do the honors, Brett, uh, we mentioned last episode in passing, there's a very famous in theology land, fantasy land, there's a, <laughs> not that those are the same thing. <laughs> okay. There's a clear um, distinction. Man, fed one to any atheists out there. So yeah, so there's this famous quote by George MacDonald about Calvinism, if you want to do the honors, Brett, which kind of embodies this whole episode. Yeah, so we thought the best way to start this episode on Calvinism is to quote, again, our favorite theologian, George MacDonald, who we mentioned multiple times in the introductory episode, who is one of our favorite theologians. He is the bomb diggity. He is famous for saying, and I quote, I turn with loathing from the God of Jonathan Edwards. That's it. Drop the mic. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist, in case you were wondering. And I mentioned him last episode briefly. He was a theologian, uh, American theologian, or I guess it was before America was even a country. Ben, you might know best. I think he was over here in, in North America in the 1700s. And he yep. was considered by many, many people, especially the Calvinists today, as one of the most brilliant American theological minds. But me and Ben... And he was. And he was. We're not going to doubt that. He was also a very apt philosopher. He wrote a lot of stuff on like the compatibilist view of human freedom. He wrote some stuff on aesthetics. So we're not going to hate on on Jonathan Edwards, the man, but he was also very famous, kind of infamous for writing a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah, he was a, he was a very popular um, revivalist, fire, fire and brimstone preacher, but also when he wasn't out there, you know, setting people's pants on fire with uh, with his rhetoric, kind of a, he was doing some kind of cool collected theologizing and philosophizing. But yeah, so I mean, George MacDonald's quote there obviously refers to the Calvinist aspect 
aspect of his theology. And George, George MacDonald grew up in the Scottish Calvinist tradition, was actually a preacher there for a while. He was actually fired from <laughs> the, the only church he ever preached at, the Church of Scotland, I believe. So I figure the first thing we should get into is just a definition of the kind of core commitment of Calvinism, right? So there are a lot of branches in the Calvinist tradition, different reformed churches or reformed leaning churches. But the kind of common core they have is a commitment to a series of doctrines that's usually captured in this acronym called TULIP. So T-U-L-I-P. We're already getting to the TULIP, huh, Ben? Let's just go for it. We see the field of TULIPs in front of us. Let's start strolling through the fields. Yes, hark, over yon, there's a TULIP. Let me describe it. So the T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. Yeah, cue a Howie scream here. Um, Howie scream, go. Yeah! All right. So total depravity refers to this idea in the language of St. Paul that everyone is born dead in their sin. So everything we do, so our core nature and everything that flows from that core nature is profoundly affected by sin in such a way that we would never of our own free will turn to God. So we're all just completely dead in our sins or totally depraved. Yeah. So this isn't your typical view of fallen humanity where you're kind of bound by sin. You're kind of in bondage to sin and in, in, in your fallen nature. This takes it to the nth degree. So they really put an emphasis on total depravity, which is a view that humanity is so far gone that there is absolutely zero hope at all for them ever seeking God or seeing God, we're just blind to our utter, pure, broken, and fallenness. We are the scum of the earth. There is nothing that we could possibly do ever to reach God. We're pretty much just blind, naked mole rats wandering around the bowels of the earth in complete darkness. <laughs> just totally totally just alien to anything of God or God's image. So that's pretty much right. total depravity. Right. And this is also why historically Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religions has also often received the moniker on naked mole rats. Okay. <laughs> so the next letter is U and that stands for unconditional election. And what this means is that before the foundation of the world, before creation, God chose to save certain possible individuals, not based on anything he saw in them, right? Not based on some sort of foreknowledge of a choice that they made for him, but he just chose to create certain individuals to be his elect, to be those that would be saved and then chose from the foundation of the world not to elect others. Yeah, so unconditional election means there's nothing, no choice or no feature of the individuals who get saved on the basis of which God elects them for salvation. It's just a pure, from the Calvinist perspective, it's a pure act of grace and that it's not even a choice on our part that moves God to choose us. It's just this unilateral choice. So pretty much God, for whatever reason, chose 
certain people before the dawn of creation to save and certain people before the dawn of creation to damn to hell for eternity. I should specify though, just really quick, I might have kind of misspoken there. So there is actually a debate among Calvinists about what's called double predestination. So all Calvinists agree that the elect are unconditionally elected from the foundation of the world. But there's a disagreement among Calvinists about whether there's some kind of similar active will on God's part in the case of damnation. So some Calvinists think that God just passes over the non-elect, but he doesn't actively create them to damn themselves. Sometimes this is put in terms of infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism, which is basically, is God's election post-fall or pre-fall? So the kind of infralapsarian view is that after the fall, all of humanity is in bondage to sin. God sees that humanity would fall, and then he just chooses to elect some out of fallen humanity and leaves the rest. As opposed to supralapsarians, you say, no, God actually foreordained the fall itself to be the mechanism by which he doubly predestines the elect for salvation and everyone else for, for damnation. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. I had forgotten about double predestination as opposed to single predestination. You kind of get into some muddy water there, though. I mean, the bottom line is, is some people were destined for hell from the foundation of the earth. We understand it either way. Yeah, on either view, if you're damned, there's nothing that you can do about it. And if you're saved, there's nothing that you can do about it. Yeah. So either way, you get you get a kind of theological determinism. Yep. So that's uh, unconditional election. So the L to me is is the most problematic. And this is where most people kind of focus their attack on Calvinism. So the L stands for limited atonement. And what this doctrine says, as it sounds like, is that Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross. So again, in the background here is an assumption that penal substitution is the correct view of the atonement or the kind of fundamental aspect of the atonement. So those Jesus paid a substitute substitutionary death for on the cross are only the elect. So his substitutionary death at least was only intended for and only effective for the elect. And so the passages in scripture that say it's for God to love the world, that he gave his only son and so forth, passages indicating that Jesus died for the world or reconciled the world on the cross. Calvinists tend to interpret the world there as being uh, what we call in philosophy a restricted quantifier. It doesn't mean everyone. It means something like all types of people. Right. Yeah. So like so, out of out of every nation or something like that. Yeah. So uh, John three sixteen should actually be read. For God so loved a small group of individuals that for those individuals are forced to love Him and predestined to love Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's pretty much how it should read. Right. It's a, right. It's a small <laughs> ragtag group of elected people who most of which are not the uh, nicest people out there. Maybe not the people you'd want to chill with. But uh, yeah, those are normally the people who believe that they're in this small group um, <laughs> and they go and they have tea with with Jesus and God uh, for eternity while the vast majority of humanity burns right and we will relish in knowing about and or watching the torments of the reprobate 
Well, yeah, that's their afternoon tea. They, they're sitting up on a cliff with Jesus. I mean, there, there's not too many of them, so they can fit on a little cliff side. <laughs> and as they sip their tea, the topic is observing the damned burning down below and praising Jesus for uh, the burning yes. and the suffering and just saying, yes, yes, indeed. Look, my cousin Eddie burning down there. Look how much he's suffering. Oh, he's getting tortured. Whoa. He's screaming uh -oh. in agony. Praise be to God. No, nah, no. Nah. Cousin Eddie is definitely elect. He's, he's sitting up there with his little, his little moose cut full of, uh, full of eggnog. How sure does look swell, Clark. Thanks, Eddie. I hope it enhances your holiday spirit. <laughs> uh, I was trying Clark. to think of a word for, or a name after cousin, and the first thing that came to mind was Eddie. You know, I love him better than cousin Eddie. <laughs> National um, Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. In case you're wondering. Yeah. Go ahead, Ben. Keep but, the tulip going. Oh, yeah. But just really quick. So I, I do want to be fair to Calvinists. Again, I, I once was a Calvinist. I do think it's a, at a purely exegetical level, I think it's a respectable position. I just think when you take more things into consideration, both exegetically and philosophically, theologically, experientially, it, it just doesn't pan out. But for example, one of the things that Calvinists will point to to try to support limited atonement are places, especially in the Gospel of John, when people don't respond to the gospel he says stuff like well they're not of my sheep because if they were my sheep they would listen to my voice my sheep know me they listen to my voice and so forth and they would point to like the the passage in matthew where jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats so it seems to be when he, when he talks about a sheep they would say well that's referring to the elect that's referring to the saved and jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep so the calvinists will say well that's for the sheep not for the goats so that's just kind of an example of how the Calvinist is thinking exegetically and kind of where they're getting this stuff from. Yeah, we don't think they're getting this stuff from thin air. They're deriving their views from a study of scripture. Yeah. But there's a lot more to a relationship with God and coming to terms with your theological worldview than a what I would consider a very narrow minded, but somewhat rational interpretation of certain passages of scripture. Yes, so, I agree. Yeah, I, I do think in the background, there's a kind of exegetical philosophy or a kind of hermeneutic that in, in many ways is like you said, Brett, it's kind of modern and kind of rationalistic take on the Bible. A lot of it has has to do with the conception of the Bible as having this implicit systematic theology in it, part of its function. Despite what people will tell you, every single one of us, when we're building our theology, are coming to our conclusions from a already established baseline or framework that we've already built for ourselves. And I think it's important, especially when it comes to the mystery of God and trying to explore who God is and what the truth of scripture is, we need to always pull the lens as far back as we can to see where exactly are we starting from? What are the implications of the baseline that we are springboarding off of to build our theology? Even if some of that is you feel like you're just building from what you're interpreting in scripture, you always need to pull back, get a wide view of the truth of the matter from your experience, from scripture, from the person of Christ. Make sure that you're starting from a good place, I guess, basically. 
And I think with the Calvinism theology, where a lot of these guys who come to these conclusions are starting from, I feel like there's already flaws at the starting line before they even get off running. We don't realize it, but we all approach scripture with certain biases, with our past, with our personal experiences as a human being. We're, all, we're automatically putting all of those things onto scripture before we even start interpreting what we're reading, even if we think we're striving to be as objective as we can. We're not really... So I think we need to keep that in mind when we're talking about scriptural interpretation, that in the end, it is a book. It is using words to describe deep, deep mysteries of an infinite God. <laughs> and, and in a lot of ways, a lot trying to explore a lot of what's the word I'm looking for. Like I, I would consider the Trinity this. I would consider Jesus being fully God and fully man this. It's where you you don't have a, a rational explanation for it. You're kind of stuck. Paradox. Paradox. Thank you, Ben. Sheesh. <laughs> There's a lot of paradoxes in scripture too at the basis of Christianity and what scripture teaches. So I think we need to realize that just a pure systematic rational approach to this comes with a lot of baggage from anybody who's approaching it, no matter what they say. And also that there is a lot of paradox in the nature of God, and especially a lot of the doctrines that the Christian faith teaches through scripture. So I think that should determine our approach initially. I'm sorry for that side tangent, but I think it's just so important to remember that. You know, so we can say, oh, there's certain scriptures that the Calvinist interprets setting up these sort of doctrines that they've created. But we always have to remember that there's always other things to explore underneath the surface. And we're talking about scriptural interpretation, if that right. makes any sense. Right. And we'll talk about more specific examples of what Brett is talking about in terms of how different hermeneutical approaches pan out in these sorts of discussions. But yeah, that's definitely true. I think maybe a helpful framework for this is what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So this is a quadrilateral of sources of authority that John Wesley, famous theologian, thought that we come up with doctrine by the interaction between these four sources of authority. So fundamentally, matter or ground zero right, of doctrine is scripture. But scripture doesn't exist in a vacuum. So we yes, always exactly. we, we always read scripture in interaction, dynamic interaction with and conversation with reason, experience, and tradition. So reason, experience, tradition, and scripture. Those are the kind of four, again, interacting dynamic nodes in our web of authority, you might say. And how we're reading scripture, like Brett is saying, is going to look different depending on how those other three things are coming to bear on scripture scripture and bearing on each other reason, experience, and tradition. There's a Franciscan priest that I like called Richard Rohr. He's a modern Franciscan priest in the Catholic Church, and he's written a lot of books. And he runs a school down in Albuquerque, New Mexico for contemplation, for the mystical mind, which I think is lacking big time, especially in today's modern society and Western culture and just the consumerism and, and just materialistic overtones to everything that we deal with daily a day. It just really hinders any opportunity to try to go in more of a mystical direction with our spiritual lives. But anyway, he really is an advocate for that sort of spiritual living. 
And he says that when he brings in new groups of students into his school for contemplation, the first thing he says, because it's the framework for everything, and it relates similar to what Ben just mentioned, Wesley established as where we start with our interpretation of scripture and our experience of God in general. Richard Rohr describes his version as a tricycle. And the front wheel in the tricycle is our experience. Because he says, whether we know it or not, we lead by experience no matter what. That's the only thing we can truly lead with. Again, like Ben said, scripture doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists within our experiences. So the front wheel of the tricycle is experience and the back two wheels are tradition and scripture. And all of those three wheels need to be working together to move forward. I also like his analogy too, but I had not heard Wesley's version of that. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I like that analogy from Richard Rohr. Although I have to say, I prefer the Wesleyan view for this, for this reason, but we're not going to debate this right now. We can, we'll discuss scriptural authority more in the future. I think there, there might be a danger in how Richard Rohr puts experience on the front end of a tricycle. I think that gives too much of a primacy to experience. So instead of a tricycle, let's just picture early 1800s John Wesley barreling down a hill on a four wheeler. All right. So it ain't, it ain't a tricycle. You need all four of those wheels. You're going all wheel drive right over the rocky terrain of Christian theology. All right. That, that actually sounds like maybe a little bit more of a smart way to go about it. Instead of being on your little uh, saw tricycle, <laughs> you know, you're uh, you're just barreling through the wilderness in your motored four wheeler. I knew Richard Rohr was of the devil. Right? He's talking about that tricycle, that <laughs> that saw-like, disturbing little tricycle, man. Congratulations, you are still alive. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. Oh, give Richard Rohr some props, man. Uh, he's chill. He's chill. Okay, let's so let's keep going. So that's okay. limited atonement. Uh, then we have I, which stands for irresistible grace. So irresistible grace says that those whom God predestined, he also called, right, in the language of St. Paul in the letter to the Romans. So the idea is that the elect whom God is going to call to himself are not going to be able to resist God's grace because God just converts them. He changes their heart. He takes out their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh, and then they respond in faith because God has done that because he has regenerated them. This is another difference between Calvinist theology and most other theological traditions is their view of conversion is such that in terms of logical or explanatory priority, God regenerating you or bringing you like back to life spiritually, right from spiritual death is something that that's logically prior to you having faith. So God enables you to have faith and respond to him by first regenerating you. Whereas most other theological traditions say, no, faith comes logically prior to regeneration. It's in virtue of you responding with faith that you're then regenerate. So that's irresistible grace. You're not going to be able to resist God's effectual call. Next. <laughs> I'm not going to go on a tangent on that one, folks. We only have a limited amount of time. <laughs> Okay, so the last is P, and that stands for perseverance of the saints. And this just means that those whom God irresistibly and effectually calls, he will, again, in the language of St. Paul, he will also glorify. So they will never, they will not be lost. Sometimes this is put in terms of the phrase, once saved, always saved in Baptist circles. But yeah, so it's the idea that you, there's no chance, if you're truly elect, there's no chance that you're going to 
apostatize and leave the faith and be lost. So that's Tulip. You can see how it all kind of logically fits together. The Calvinists love that. Very right. tidy, very neat, very right. logical. Right. All your little uh, reformed ducks in a row. The Calvinists love their nice, tidy, theological, rational suit coat with patches on the elbows style view of God. You know, it's just... Uh, <laughs> It's just so nice. Exactly. If you contemplating the essence of God does not feel like you sitting in a stuffy church with a bunch of people wearing old tweed coats and talking about craft beer as if it's interesting or rebellious, then you're not thinking about the essence of God. Okay. And you know, some of these theologians will act like it's not just all about our mind and all about rationality and building this Calvinist theology. They will say with much passion that they are striving with all of their might to pursue God and persevere as a saint and love God and have their mind blown by who God is. But it always comes with a lot of sweating, a lot of bulging of <laughs> veins on their forehead head, uh, saliva spewing from their lips as they describe their deep and utter passion of their pursuit of God. And it always happens within an 80s sanctuary church. <laughs> and everything outside of it is just kind of this weird stuff they don't get involved with. Listen, um, uh, if Calvinism as a theological tradition had a smell, it would smell like an old clothing rack in a goodwill, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'll let us move into other areas. You know, I'm sure we'll start getting on uh, on some trains and, and cracking the whip soon enough. Where are we going next, Benny? Yeah, so before I guess we dive headlong into our critique, yes, yeah, so we talked a little bit about some of the kind of scriptural basis, so I, I won't talk more about that at this point. Like Brett was trying to indicate, scripture by itself is just going to underdetermine this debate. It's not going to settle by itself whether Calvinism is right or not because it doesn't exist by itself. We don't come to texts in a vacuum outside of tradition, reason, and experience. But suffice it to say, we do want to just admit at the beginning that there is a respectable um, exegetical case to be made for Calvinism. Some of the other theological reasons behind Calvinism or motivations, many Calvinists think that this sort of view of soteriology or that is a term for the doctrine of salvation, is the only one in many of their minds that really emphasizes the Reformation concept of sola gratia, by grace alone. And so they think that if we're saved in virtue of something in ourselves, even if it's just faith, then it's not purely of God's unilateral grace. And so th there is a legitimate uh, motivation they have. Right? We do want to emphasize God's grace, the total gratuity of Jesus's sacrifice for us and our standing before God. I just think that their belief that the only way to preserve that radical emphasis on grace or the the Reformation notion of sola gratia is through this odd view of regeneration and faith and so on. Another big emphasis for Calvinists is God's sovereignty. And do you want to talk a little about that, Brett, the kind of sovereignty sure. paradigm in Calvinism? Yeah, this is one of their big, big emphases as far as their Calvinist views is they very, very, very much want to retain the idea of the ultimate sovereignty of God, of God's power, of the bigness of God and having 
complete and utter reign and control over everything and over creation, which is understandable. We all want a sovereign God. We realize that the world is screwed up, that we're screwed up, and we really need a powerful God to rely on, to trust, to lean into. So you can see where they come from with wanting to emphasize God's sovereignty. The problem is, is, is the way they go about doing it. So they want to say that God is sovereign. Therefore, everything that we read in scripture has to go back to God having total and complete control over every other truth in scripture, whether it be people going to heaven and hell, stories in the Old Testament with Jewish history and some of the decisions they made made, the way Christ spoke on certain occasions, certain parables, that instead of coming to a text that doesn't sit right with them, or come into a, a text where they feel like they need to take a step back, suffer the text for a little bit, and really let the Holy Spirit guide them, I feel like they maybe lean toward their mind and in interpreting. Again, they're kind of the rational mind side of things, and just say, well, that's what the text says, it is what it is, and God is sovereign over that. And God ordains that because if God allows anything, he has to have complete and utter control over it and has to will it from all eternity. That's where the problems are created. So you can kind of see where we all kind of want a powerful God. And me and Ben, our theology brings a very, very sovereign and powerful God to the table. But the way they go about interpreting scripture while trying to hold on to that idea through all of their interpretations, the good and the bad things in scripture, that's where the problems start to kick in with the Calvinist particular view on retaining the, the idea of the sovereignty right of god right right and we'll get more into that issue as well as we go on and so then lastly really quick i think the other kind of maybe fundamental guiding theological idea for calvinism is the idea of god's glory so for calvinists mm -hmm. they view the, the fundamental reason for creation the ultimate goal or telos of creation is to demonstrate God's glory. And here's the key point. No one really debates that, but how they understand God's glory is in many ways as a manifestation of God's power. So they think that God needs to fully manifest the range of his attributes and the range of his attributes as they relate to his power. So his power to unilaterally save and his retributive power shown in the wrath against the elect. And there it is right there. What we were talking about earlier with the foundations that the Calvinists are starting with and interpreting what sovereignty means. And they go to power, just like Ben said. Right. They don't go to love. They don't go to sacrifice. They go automatically to power. And then we get into the definition of power. They go into what we interpret as humans as power and just project that on God. And then that's the springboard that they jump off of. Right. It's the very, it's a very kind of pagan view of the power of the gods. It's, it's the, it's the kind of, it's kind of Zeus. Right. It's the kind of shock and awe power rather than as paul says the cross being the power 
of God. It's shock and awe power. It's like Zeus or King Trident from The Little Mermaid, like a really <laughs> ripped, really ripped old guy with a white beard who either has a trident or has lightning bolts and just smiting people. Because that's what power is, according to the Calvinists. They see power as almost inevitably leading to some sort of violence. You know, right. but that I don't believe that that's the power right. that Christ came to reveal. And or, and for them, that violence is not just against the damned at the end of the day, but it's also their view of atonement as penal substitution, that God needed to commit violence on behalf of the elect. Ben, explain penal sin. substitution briefly, because we've mentioned it a couple times. Okay, so penal substitution is a view of the atonement that basically says the kind of central aspect of Christ's atoning work on the cross was that he was bearing the retributive wrath of God on behalf of the world. And by the way, this is not this is not only Calvinists that hold to penal substitution. Yeah. Penal substitution has been the kind of dominant view of most Protestant theologians since the Reformation, although that started to change a lot in the last... 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And again, um, well, even though the Calvinists aren't the only ones who hold the penal substitution, you're thinking of God in terms of worldly power, aka, I don't know any other way to describe it, but violence. And you think of God's wrath. So because of that baseline of, of thinking of God as having this kind of violent power, you interpret wrath as being a violent act, and then you bring it to the cross. And then it becomes this violent wrath being poured out on his own son, Jesus, for the sins of the world, shedding blood being the only way to redeem creation. Blood shed violence as not what humans did to Christ and Christ showing the self sacrificing for all of humanity to come into solidarity with humanity, but a transaction where God needed to smite Jesus on the cross for us to be saved. It puts violence at the core of the Christian, quote unquote, good news of the gospel. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk more about theories of the atonement and violence in Christianity and et cetera in the future. But yeah, I'm but going it will on a be lot important. of tangents. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. It's a it's a relevant tangent, obviously, because you're right. Calvinism, in many ways, is a violent centric theological paradigm. But again, I want to clarify. I know there are a lot of people who really know their Bibles out there are already thinking right now. Well, doesn't Paul himself say right? There is no redemption without the the shedding of blood. Quoting from the Old Testament in one of his letters, no one's disagreeing with the fact that the atonement was a violent occurrence. And when we're, we're not disagreeing with Paul, right, yeah. in terms of him saying that that there is no redemption without the shedding of blood, it's a particular interpretation of what that means. That we're disagreeing with. The way that the Calvinist understands that is the shedding of blood is something that is retributively done by God. It's necessary because God has to pour out his violent wrath, as opposed to other views of the atonement that would say, yeah, again, with, with St. Paul, there is no redemption without the shedding of blood, but the shedding of blood is something like Brett was saying, that's an aspect of Christ entering into full solidarity with us and taking on the consequences of death and destruction that are just the natural consequences of our sin, coming into that and receiving that from evil men so that, yeah. he can, so that he can redeem it from the inside and heal it. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing that violence was a part of the cross. Obviously it was, 
But what we're debating is who's holding the smoking gun when it's all said and done? Is it God the Father or is it humanity? And our view right. would be humanity. Right, exactly. Oh, by the way, actually, I wanted to say before, Brett, did you come up with that phrase uh, a few minutes ago, um, suffering scripture? I wish I could say that was a total original, but I've gotten that from some theologians. Oh, okay. Because I, I love that phrase. I never heard that before. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there's the uh, the long setup. That's what Calvinism is. Those are just kind of motivations and the kind of paradigm it's working on under, right? The kind of guiding ideas are glory, grace, and sovereignty. So now let's dive in <laughs> to the different kind of areas of Christian doctrine that Brett and I think Calvinism really pushes us in some problematic directions within. Okay, so let's begin by getting into ground zero with the doctrine of God, how the Calvinist conception of God might rub against certain historic Christian ideas about God. So do you have any uh, thoughts on that to start us off, Brett? Sure. I guess the first point that we'll look at is the fact that Calvinism undermines God's essential attribute of perfect love. The Bible says God is love, period. And Calvinism automatically undermines the unity of the divine essence by postulating that there's almost two wills in God, not almost, that there is two wills in God. And this creates a conflict between his uh, merciful love and his retributive justice. It automatically, from the get-go, creates God into this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of character that you really can't trust. Right, right. Historically, Calvinists even use this language of the secret counsel or the hidden will of God. Yeah, God has to have unity. That is the nature of what we believe is there being one God or even the Trinitarian God, that there's a unity there. And so much of that is permeated in our Christian belief and our Christian walk and even our own intuitions. That unity is at the core of everything. That where there is disunity, where there is disjunction, we're falling short of what is ultimate. So when you're creating disjunction and disunity in the very nature of God, we have problems. Right, right. Like how you, you touched on the Trinity there. So not only with scripture, but even just with broad classical Christian doctrine, we can ask ourselves, if we want to know like what is the core aspect of God's essence, a kind of thought experiment to help us get at that is what must have God been like in his own intrinsic nature in the absence of creation. And we as Christians believe that God is triune. There are three divine persons sharing one essence, one God. And that is a eternal, intrinsic, loving, dynamic relationship, right? Within I think, I think that is the very so, nature of God. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And I, I want that to actually be a big idea that we always come back to in this podcast is Trinitarian view of God. Every Christian would say, yes, that is at almost the dogmatic level, a belief of the Christian faith is that God is three, that God is triune. Yet that's rarely, if ever, really unpacked. And we don't follow 
the ramifications of a Trinitarian God all the way out into scripture, into our own experience of God. We just kind of shelve that idea that's supposedly at the center of what is actually uniquely Christian in our view of God. And I think the Trinitarian view would be a great thought experience to pit up against this Calvinist view of the attributes of God, where he has this loving side, but he also hates sin and has this attributive, damning, judgmental side. Right. And again, no one no one here is denying that God does have a judgmental side and does have a side of his wrath. The question is, do we understand those things as intention with God's essential attribute of love or as in conflict with it as a kind of tension that needs to be resolved? Yeah, you need to start from God is love and then read everything else that you see and find in scripture through that lens. And you need to interpret it through God being love. And I think even a lot of people get confused about that saying right there, because people don't have accurate view of what the Bible means when it speaks of love. I mean, C.S. Lewis has a great book on, I think it's the four loves that goes into the explanation of different kinds of love. Agape love, God's love for us. Yes. So we always have to remember what agape love is, because if we start interpreting passages that says God is love, when the Bible speaks of God's love into something less than agape love, maybe infatuation or lower level love that we... Or kind of arbitrary love, yeah. Or arbitrary love that we kind of experience as humans, then I don't think we're going to be grasping the full truth and magnitude of what that statement means ultimately god is love right and i I think there are two places we can go in scripture that really help illuminate what that passage in first john means god is love the first is right i think pretty soon after john says that in that letter he says and we know what love is in this or he says love is this that while we were sinners Christ died for us. So the way that John defines the love that he's just said is definitive of God is the enemy loving, purely gratuitous, self-sacrificial love of Jesus shown on the cross. And then we go back to the very words of Jesus himself when he says something similar, where he says, you need to love your enemies because if you don't love your enemies, then you're not being like God. He says, even the Gentiles and even pagans love those who love them. But if you want to be like your father in heaven, you need to love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you and wrong you. So that's the way Jesus defines the love of the Father in this way as well. It's not enemy destroying, it's enemy loving agape. That's exactly right. That's how God commands us to love because our Father in heaven loves that way. So it is so key to remember what kind of love God is because that affects everything. And you can already see a flawed view of that love poisoning the Calvinist doctrine from this first point that we're going over with God, yes, being loving, but also being attributive, wearing these dual hats. It's already seeping into this doctrine and creating God's love and unity to be something that it's not. Right. Because yeah, I think I, of a failure of, of interpreting what God is love means. Right. 
Yeah. And I think you see, you know, many people have said this, that your view of God in many ways is the most important thing about you because your actions, the way that you speak and the way that you behave is always going to flow from your view of God, how you think the character of God or the essence of God is. Yep. And I do think both historically and now with uh, not all, but much Calvinist preaching and many Calvinist preachers and writers, the kind of attitude they have, the whole kind of atmosphere right, of their preaching and the way they communicate, mm -hmm. you can kind of see that it's ref kind of reflecting the God they believe in. It's not lowly and meek. It's very harsh. It's very coming down on people. It's very judgmental. Yes. It's very little emphasis on nonviolence and loving your persecutors and such. Yes, that is so true. You truly become the God you worship. Whether you realize it or not, you do. And that is one thing that has become very obvious to me as I have explored Calvinist teachers and preachers and theologians, Arminian, more universalistic, and you can see clear distinctions on what theologically creates within themselves what it actually makes them like. They become their view of God. And you see all of these Calvinist preachers and you see a trend with how they carry themselves, how they preach, how they speak to and about other people. The scripture says you will know them by their fruits. And I think you can see a lot of bad fruit coming from these Calvinists. They'd probably hate for someone to say that because they're so doggone passionate. They really pride themselves on their just extreme toiling the field passion for the pursuit of God. But God says my burden, the yoke is light that I put on you. Love lifts you up. Love brings peace. Love brings joy joy. Love brings joviality. It brings laughter. It brings light. Everything good. Yet we don't see that too often. A lot of these Calvinists, everything is very hard. By the sweat of your brow is the religious life. They say that they are passionate and that they have this deep joy, but it's a very heavy joy. It's not light. And I don't know if that's even joy at that point. Yet they yeah. go back to the sovereignty of God again and saying, we must take these things seriously. That's what John Piper loves to preach is my joy is weighty. I don't, I don't make jokes in my sermon because God is a serious matter. Well, where does humor come from? When are the most absolute blissful and joyous times in your life? It's those times when you're with good friends, you're with family, you're cracking jokes, you're with your best buddies, you have the same humor, when you're just enjoying a vacation. I mean, that is where it comes in, in the light, jovial moments. Yeah, so that reminds me of a... Uh... Another great quote by G.K. Chesterton, where he says, angels fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's so true. The best moments in life are light. They're jovial. They're humorous. And I think that's where God lives. And I think God is all about that. He created that for crying out loud. Our capacity to have humor and to have a lightness in those beautiful moments of life comes from God. Who else could it come from? They're blessings. So I think when you see some of this, these Calvinists, and, and they're just totally devoid of that, it's telling. <laughs> 
right. because they believe a God who's devoid of that. So they can't right. partake in that or put importance on that because their God doesn't. Right. So he, here's a simultaneous Dickens and Muppets reference. Oh, we're so, bringing the Muppets I, in. Because, of course, the Muppets has the best portrayal of Dickens. Christmas Carol, baby. Yeah, Christmas Carol. So, yeah, the, the, the kind of atmo of the Calvinist God is the ghost of Christmas future. Am I in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come? Spirit, I fear you more than any specter I have yet met. And the atmo of the true God, not the God of Calvinism and Jonathan Edwards, is the ghost of Christmas present. Come in and know me better, man. Cue clip. Ho, 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 ho. Come in and know me better, man. Ho, 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 ho. Oh, I love the ghost of Christmas present. Oh, he's such a fat, jolly fellow. He just loves life. See, and what do you feel when you watch The Ghost of Christmas Present or read about him in Christmas Carol? It's just a joy. It's actually beautiful <laughs> the way he experiences life. Yeah. You're drawn to it. And I believe that's because that's at the heart of who God is. I think yeah, that, that's exactly what Jesus says, right? He says, uh, I, I want to, in his prayer in the garden, or uh, I'm not sure when exactly it was, but in the late chapters of John, one of his last prayers for the disciples in the world, he says, I pray that their joy, the joy that I have in you from eternity might be theirs, that their joy might be made complete. There, yeah, there's this joy in the heart of God and the very essence of God. It's the Christmas joviality. It's, so it's, it's holly and it's, you know, gathering around the fire and yeah. Yes. So Ben, I'm going to, I'm going to set you up for something. So if I was John Piper, I would say this, you know, I don't think what you, what you realize is that I do have a joy. I have a deep joy for God. How dare you say I don't have this joy. Half my <laughs> sermons are on this joy that I have. Refute that, Ben. Piper's calling you out. Well, first, I would ask whether John Piper is in fact Paul Giamatti. And then <laughs> next, I would just say... Yeah, my John Piper impression sucks. Go ahead. <laughs> I would just say, yo, pipe dog, I got some truth coming down, coming down the pipeline for you, right? <laughs> and it's that you wouldn't know joy if it were a wet fish that smacked you across the face. He, he's a great guy. He's just, <laughs> he's just damaging a lot of minds and hearts. No, he is. He is. Okay, well, let's pick it up a little bit. So we've already touched on doctrine of God for and sure. also as aspects of Christology and his ministry and his teaching as well. This train needs to start rolling, Ben. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, Maybe the next thing we could talk about is how Calvinism seems to me is kind of in tension with what you might call the meta narrative of scripture, the kind of overarching story that scripture is telling about creation, fall, and redemption. So do you have any initial thoughts on that, Brett? I do indeed. Um, again, we need to pull back the lens and look at the grandiose story that the Bible tells of God, of creation, of how this is all going to wrap up. And you see in Genesis that God created the world and the universe and everything in it, and that it was good, that everything in the world, including us, are at their core good. 
It didn't say God created the world and it was totally depraved. Genesis says God created the world and it was good. So I, I and you know, I, I got to believe that a beautiful, good Trinitarian God would create something good, right? I mean, that just would be the logical conclusion. And like it seems something. like he, he it seems like he wouldn't need to add a little uh, emerald, little dash of evil. Exactly. We, God's pretty smart. I think he knows what he's doing in all of this. Anyway, so God created was good. And then man fell, man rebelled. And from that point forward, we have been struggling in this world. And man is created in God's image. We are image bearers of God set apart from the natural creation from animals. We are the crown jewel of creation where God actually imprinted his image on us. Right. So once we fell, God was ready. I think he knew that that was going to happen. He already had his sleeves rolled up and the work he was about to do is called a redemption. Right. A beautiful and, and like, word. And like you said, Brett, I think the whole doctrine of man as the, the crown jewel of creation and the image bearer of God, I think is so important because it seems that the Calvinist view says that God prefers that the vast majority of his image bearers be permanently marred in order that he could show off the quote unquote glory of his torturous retribution. But that, that would seem to be an insult to himself because yeah. we are his image bearers. So why would, wouldn't it be the greatest insult for him to intentionally discard the vast majority of his image bearers rather than heal them? Exactly. Exactly. And going back to the Calvinist view of total depravity, they get a kick out of preaching that because then they think that that creates our like thankfulness, if we're elect, mind you, that we were saved. Like you have to know how much of a piece of crap you are before you can appreciate God's grace. Right. There's something kind of pathological about it. It's like if I held a gun to your head and I said, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to shoot you, right? Unless you say the right thing. I'm real, I'm burning with hatred against you. And then you say the right thing and it, or whatever. And I make you say the right thing. And then I take the gun away. And then I say, man, shouldn't you just be full of love and gratitude towards me that I put you in a position where I held a gun to your head and forced you to say the right thing? Now I've taken it away. Like, don't you need to hear that bad news of how much I hated you just then in order to really love me? Yeah, it, it just does not hold up like so much of Calvinism. It does not hold water when you actually start thinking about this stuff. So if we're image bearers of God and not totally depraved, then that's where redemption truly starts. Because when we realize that we have worth, that's when we can begin the process of being redeemed. Because everyone knows they're kind of a piece of crap. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, we don't need a Calvinist telling us our, we're totally depraved for us to appreciate God's grace. Right. We know the world's jacked up. Right. We know Paul we're himself. Paul himself says in Romans that the, the law of God is even written on the Gentiles' hearts and their conscience accuses and recuses them as they go through life trying to do good. Yeah. So anyway, this whole story of creation and just the grand story of God, it, you know, the rest after man falls is a redemptive story. 
and Calvinism just becomes very problematic in there being a happy ending to this story. We like to say, and all the Calvinists will say like, oh yeah, praise God, we're all going to heaven, you know, there's a happy ending for some of us, we're sinners, but we're among the elect, so we should be dead right now. Calvinists love to say that, they, they love to say, if you really got what you deserved, you would be dead right now. Just the fact that you're breathing is by the grace of God. And that goes actually that, that 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 wouldn't even be good enough for the Calvinists because they the most of them believe in eternal torment. Oh yeah, not dead, but uh, but being being poked with a fire poker by <laughs> demons in a lake of fire. So worse than death, I guess I should say. So that's not where redemption starts, right? And that's not a happy ending to the story. The happy ending to the story is Jesus being the second Adam, just like the Bible says. Through Adam all fell and through christ i don't even want to get into like some of these universalism just do it just do hopeful inclusionism type what stuff. The, that's what the bible says baby all will be redeemed that's a happy ending that's something you can get on board with man i'm telling you that will light a fire under your tush more so than a fear of hell ever would calvinists just they don't understand that love and grace and true good news can be the the biggest motivator in the world they think that you have to threaten people with damnation and hell to motivate people to get on their hands and knees and realize and appreciate god's grace for them and turn from their wicked ways. the the relevant passage was as an adam all die so in christ all will be made alive and also like you're just saying brett again paul himself says in the same letter in the letters to the romans that it's god's kindness that moves you to repentance yes and i can i can testify to that in my own life when those moments where i really get a hold of god's love for me his kindness for me when that really sinks in and and we'll never grasp the magnitude of that infinite love but when we get even a glimpse of that that seems like a big thing in our human experience oh that will drive you into being the best evangelist you could think of that's when you're truly motivated to live for god that's where sinful desires really dissipate and you want to tell people about this I can just speak from my own experience that when I am viewing God and experiencing God as pure love, pure kindness, pure father, in the best sense of the word, that is when my spirit is awakened like it never is at any other point in my life, just totally on fire. And then you know what? There's no veins bulging out of my forehead with that passion. (laughs) There's no sweat. It is a rest in God's arms. It is a cool of the evening fire that's awakened. It's a peace. It's a passion that makes the stress dissipate. It doesn't heighten the stress. I don't get more tense. I get more peaceful. Right. Know? And I, I I like the point you were making. I totally agree with all of that. And I like the point you were making about evangelism. It made, it made me think of this image in terms of, right, so like the gospel is the good news, or I love uh, how Big DBH translates it in his, his recent translation. David Bentley Hart. The good tidings, that's what it is. So I picture like the herald coming out and heralding the good news or the good tidings. It seems like the kind of image on Calvinism is one of an evil, a destructive approaching army, like approaching your city. And the quote unquote good tidings that the herald brings in 
right, running into the city is quick, surrender now. They're about to destroy the city and kill everyone in it. If you value your lives over your complete annihilation, listen carefully, Midas. Xerxes conquers and controls everything he rests his eyes upon. He leads an army so massive it shakes the ground with its march, so vast it drinks the rivers dry. All the God King Xerxes requires is this, a simple offering of earth and water, a token of Sparta's submission to the will of Xerxes. This is Sparta! What right. was the baseline of that but attitude? It, but if you, right. But if you surrender now, they won't kill you. You'll be able to get out of the city. Yeah. That's the Calvinist good tidings. Whereas <laughs> to me, I, I think I think the, the true good tidings is the herald running into the city and saying, look, all of the armies have turned back. Peace has been made between us and the other city. That's what Paul talks about when he talks about us being ambassadors of reconciliation, that yeah. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, making peace by his blood shed on the cross. God has made yes. peace with the world. That's the good tidings. It's not that he's still waging war. And if you happen to surrender, he might not torture you. So Ben, how about we get into some of the, uh, on a practical level, problems with Calvinism? Let's let's go them fairly quickly. If, if we want to put in some two cents on, on one of these, we can. Yeah. Um, and then we can just, toward the end of the podcast, just fly off the cuff and just start spitballing all of our random critiques and thoughts <laughs> on how Calvinism just crushes people <laughs> all right so yeah let's just do a rapid fire i guess so yeah so the first and this is something i experienced in my own life especially when i was a calvinist i think it's the worst aspect of it is it really does keep people in perpetual fear and insecurity over their own salvation right i know that was a big issue for you yeah because the thing is Again, you're either elect or you're not. You're either predestined for salvation or you're not. And because there are those passages in scripture that talk about at least apparent apostasy, the way Calvinists have explained that is, yeah, like there are many people that can be self-deceived. They're deceived about whether they're in Christ or not, whether they're elect or not. And they might even be deceived in that way for like a long time and be like an active member of the church and so forth. But then they fall away and they were never elect. And so, and that's, and you see this emphasis in a lot of Calvinist preaching. It's just always, oh, you need to be checking yourself. You always need to be introspectively analyzing your own heart and your own actions. Are you really elect or are you really a Christian sort of thing? And there's so it no just, peace. There's no peace. There's no assurance. Yeah. So that's the first big issue. So the, the second issue with Calvinism on a practical level is it helps to foster an angry and prideful attitude toward those outside the church and just people in general, even within the church. And this comes, again, from us just watching Calvinists preach. There's always this kind of cavalier attitude and holier than thou attitude. Even if they're trying to fight it, or even if they'll say otherwise, it really does come out in the undertones of everything that they say. Again, a lot of this the Calvinists will deny with their words, but the subconscious implications of their theological views boil to the surface no matter what they say or, or how much they don't want to believe it. And this is one of those areas. It's always this subtle thing like, yes, I am elect, you are not, or we're not sure if you are. But all I know is that I'm elect. I mean, even the term elect can automatically create 
pride in you. I'm above other people who right. are also image bearers of God. It's just not good. This view that God is supremely angry and hateful uh, and primarily concerned with his own glory and showing that glory by damning people literally. How do you begin to live a loving in, in the real way, essence of love kind of life? It's, it's so hard. I mean, again, the scripture says you'll know them by their fruits. We keep on emphasizing that. And uh, the fruits of Calvinism has tended to be both historically and now in the present day, angry, prideful, exclusionary attitude coming from Calvinists, cavalier, like I just mentioned, attitude towards violence, where the Bible clearly teaches nonviolence. And we'll get into that <laughs> future yeah. episodes. Well, actually, as, as a quick side note, uh, while we're on the ad hominems, uh, it is noteworthy, as others have pointed out, that John Calvin himself gave the go-ahead uh, in Geneva <laughs> to burn a guy he viewed as a heretic Servetus, burn him at the stake. He was also kind of a theocrat, so... Yeah, I don't even know if we mentioned this, but obviously Calvinism comes from the theologian in the Reformation period, John Calvin. He's the one who his writings created this theology that's been going strong ever since his lifetime. And he was a contemporary of, Zwingli of, John, and, of Martin Luther. Yeah, and he was a little after Martin Luther, I think. Or yeah. I guess he, he did come a little after Martin Luther. Who, who was the other theologian preacher who was kind of a contemporary of Calvin then? Zwingli was the main one I was thinking of. I think he was a Swiss uh, reformer. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of those. There are a lot of those long bearded, weird, weird hatted guys around at the time. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what this theology is based on is the writings of John Calvin in the 1500s. Right. So let's just conclude, I think, with actually this also might this might be the actual fundamental problem here <laughs> is when Calvinism comes into contact with evil with like the truly horrendous evils of the world and what Calvinism has to say about that. When the rubber hits the road with yeah. the horrendous evils and fallenness of human experience. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that, Brett? I, I do. And I really think this is very central in our critique with Calvinism. We can talk theology till we're blue in the face. In the end, we're just talking theology. We always have to go back to our visceral, real, blunt experience of our lives and of this world. And our theology needs to be able to sit in every aspect of our experience, whether that be good or bad. And we both know that this world is full of very good, beautiful, blissful things, but it's also full of extreme evil and horror and unimaginable violence. And any theology that you hold needs to be able to handle that, to take it in. And I was just having actually a conversation with Ben as an example a couple weeks ago on this uh, Florida shooting at a, a high school down in Parkland, Florida that happened recently. And there was something about watching the news coverage on that for me that it just put me vulnerable at the feet of God again, asking why. This is just a small recent example. Not, well, I, I'm not going to call it small, but you know, you have stuff like the Holocaust and other things in history that are just unimaginably horrific. But there was something about the way this shooting went down because I could see myself in the students or even the teachers, because I've thought about becoming a teacher too, that were killed in this school. I mean, these students who were 14, 15 years old that were at the start of their life 
you know, the very beginning full of hopes and dreams. I mean, I remember when I was that age and I was just full of just enthusiasm and hope and optimism for the future and my life ahead of me. And that was taken away from them in a violent way where the shooter came in and shot these students and these teachers to death who were innocent and just so undeserving. And it just really hit me hard. It just laid me again, like happens every so often at just the cold, vast, dark reality of evil in this world and injustice in this world. The only reason I'm sitting here at 30 years old today is because I wasn't shot in my school when I was in a public high school, just like those kids were. That's the only reason I'm being able to do this podcast. I'm able to enjoy having fun with friends, just living life. The only reason I had that gift is because that didn't happen to me. And the fact that happened to these kids is an extreme injustice. So if your theology can't handle this, 15-year-olds being shot down, some of which weren't, I'm sure, confessing Christian believers, per se, and under a Calvinist doctrine, some of these kids who were just beautiful souls, I'm sure that probably the nicest kids ever, probably a heck of a lot nicer and, and better than me, were shot to death and they didn't have the gift of life beyond 14 years on this planet. And according to the Calvinists, they're going to eternal conscious torment. And they were not, they're not just going there. They were predestined to go there before the foundations of the earth. That God predestined these beautiful kids to live a life on this earth for 14 years, be shot to death, die a painful death, and, and, and go straight to a lake of fire that God has ordained. That is just the most horrible, demonic, in my opinion, doctrine imaginable. That provides no hope. What am I supposed to have hope and supposed to have peace just because I think I'm elect and that I'm going to go to heaven one day when all this crazy, violent, unspeakable, horrific things are happening all around me every single day in this world? No, the Cal I feel like the Calvinist theology just completely completely breaks down. The wheels fall off the axles when you get out of your head and you hit the blunt evil realities of this broken world. Yeah. I need hope. Yeah. And I believe, I just want to say real quick, I believe that a God who actually is love, that is in solidarity with those kids' pain, who loves those kids beyond the foundation of the earth and those teachers and is the best father you could ever imagine to them, the big bear hug around them and their souls from all eternity, and that every right is going to be made wrong and every tear will be wiped away and that God is orchestrating a beautiful redemption. That is the hope we need to cling on to. Sorry, Brett obviously meant every wrong is going to be made right yeah. oh shoot yeah thank you ben <laughs> on calvinism wow. Wow. right is going to be made wrong exactly exactly so yeah. anyway ben that's that there's my two cents on that no i yeah i completely agree with that i there's just there's no way that you can sincerely like you said you know fall at the feet of the calvinist god in in a moment like that in response to evils like that and feel that's a source of peace unless there's some sort of cognitive dissonance because for the calvinist god is in control over all of that it's all great if you think of god being in control of the beauty and majesty of the world but what comfort or peace or you know reconciling love do you get from the claim that God is in control of school shootings? God is in control of sex trafficking. God is in control of genocide and rape. That's not something you want God to be in control 
over or ordaining. Calvinism only amplifies the problem of evil. It turns it up to 11. It does nothing to ameliorate it. And boy, do we need hope. And you know what? We believe the gospel truly is good news and that it provides hope and peace and rest. And we do not believe Calvinism provides this. We realize that it's a fairly significant theological current in the Christian church, and it's been there for the past 500 or so years. But we just believe that it's it really is damaging. It brings much more harm than good. And the thing about it is, is when you start projecting these attributes onto God and onto ultimate truth, that is probably the most damaging thing that you could do in, in this world to people, period. Um, I've told Ben before that I think atheism does less damage than doctrines like Calvinism because they're not claiming to put what any sensible person would see as evil things and attributes onto God, our only hope, our creator, our source. Right. When you start doing that, we're totally lost. I mean, we truly are totally depraved, if that's what the Calvinist really wants to say about God. It's just so unfathomable. But they find a way to justify it through their systematic interpretations of Scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For the Calvinists, the story that God is telling with the universe is a tragedy. Or, you know, actually, it's, it's a comedy. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. <laughs> it's a tragic comedy is what it is. But also, yeah, yeah I, it's just to end this part of the discussion, going back to what you were saying earlier about the image of God relating to that again. I mean, to me, if we're made in God's image and we find our perfect fulfillment in him, right? As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Why is there a radical conflict between the Calvinist picture of the world and God and our deepest longings? Our deepest longings for healing and acceptance and a final resolution of evil. All of those deep longings that we have to believe are part of the Imago Dei are thwarted by Calvinist doctrine, not yeah. resolved. And the Calvinists would say that's because we're t we're so out of our wits, we're so backwards, we're so, again, depraved, that we don't know right from wrong, up from down, left from right. All right, and if that's true, we might as well call God evil, because apparently our ethical concepts are so radically in error, or can be so radically yeah. in error, that we just we don't even know what the language we use means. Yeah, what, what kind of sick joke is that? Like, according to the Calvinists, that God creates people who are literally insane, that their deepest intuitions and longings don't point to anything true. They point to the opposite, and that everything that goes against what their intuitions say is actually true. Like, what, what, what does that even mean? And that flies directly in the face of scripture that speaks to man being created in the image of God. If we have no moral compass that's foundational to who we are as creatures, then it's all for naught. It's all absurd. It's all tragic. And, and scripture speaks against that. Again, Paul teaches that we all have, our conscience is the law of God written on our hearts. And elsewhere, he says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man, that they might seek after God as he's seeking them. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, again, there's scriptures to back up both, but we know what beauty is. We know what love is when we see it. And uh, God is at the end of that waiting for us. He has put what some say is a God-shaped hole in all of us and a deep longing for what is true, what is beautiful, and ultimately God himself. So I don't think anybody's arguing that we're fallen, but this idea of total depravity is just absurd. Yeah. 
All right. So the, that's the uh, meat of the discussion. So Brett, let's end with a little rapid fire. Um, what do they call it? When psychoanalysts will show you a picture, a, a Rocher test or however Word you say association that. or yeah, or free association, something like that. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to throw out some random uh, contemporary Calvinist preachers, right? And I just want to want you to give me your... Uh, oh, man, your, this could be bad, man. Your first... <laughs> this could be controversial. You're setting me up to not say nice things. Yeah, well, you can do it for me, too. So we'll, we'll, be, we'll get those extra years of purgatory. All right, together. let's go. All right, I'm down. All right, uh, John MacArthur. You're not as important as you think you are. You're far less important than you think you are, and so am I. You want one word or you just want some thoughts? Uh, anything, whatever pops into your head. Whatever's tickling your jimmies. John McArthur. I would say he is stuffy. That's the first word that comes to mind. Stuffy, like, <gasps> need fresh air. Kind of like, kind of SpongeBob and Sandy's dome <laughs> sort of thing. Exactly. I don't know. He just, he is just the, the typical feeling religious person always buttoned up to the T. I mean, I remember one interview where they gave him a person. So actually I don't feel too bad about <laughs> going down on him because he goes down on other preachers. Um, they, they said, what do you think of Stephen Furtick and his new church? And he said, oh, one word unqualified. It's like, gee, <laughs> Thanks, John MacArthur. This guy actually doing some good, bringing people to like kind of a passion for God all over. And maybe you don't like think he's going about it the best way, but all you can think of is unqualified. It's like, dude, man, like where is the grace? What where is the appreciation? For oh, but also his John MacArthur's organization is called Grace to You. Are you serious? Cue sound effects. Anyway, yeah. What's next? Uh, Paul Washer. And many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend an eternity in hell. Oh my goodness. You don't want to know. <laughs> uh, Paul Washer is really down on the sinner's prayer. And I think we would think that, yeah, obviously, if you don't start living a Christian life or you don't truly try to be in a relationship with Christ, the sinner's prayer meant nothing, even if you said it. But he loves just to really hound on that. He's all about being controversial. Yeah. He loves the fact that he's controversial. And I think a lot of preachers enjoy this because they feel like it's a badge of honor. You know, they read scriptures like the world will hate you. Yeah. I tell them the, the hard yeah. truths. I have the balls to tell them what they don't want to hear. And even if my only audience is God, oh, man, I'm doing it. Oh, man, I'm a man. Let me do some push-ups. Oh, yeah. I go against the grain. It's like, yeah, dude, man. It's just another way of boosting yourself up. It's another way to be egotistical. And I don't even, you know, I, I could talk a whole hour on these guys. <laughs> It's unbelievable. These guys are representing huge swaths of the Christian faith yeah. in modern day America. It's crazy. Yeah. And I feel like I, 
probably the worst aspect of someone like Paul Washer is another thing he loves to do is he loves making people insecure about their salvation. It's all about that yes. Puritan, Puritan influenced constant introspection and anxiety based oh, yeah. kind of stuff. It's funny. It's like God says he brings peace, yet all these guys bring is anxiety to people. Yeah. The opposite of peace. All right, Ben, I'll, I'll give a couple to you. How about that? Um, right. How about how about Mark Driscoll? Being a coward, a fool, being like your father, Adam. I knew that was coming. <laughs> uh, on, I, you know, back in my, you know, young, impressionable Calvinist days, I liked Mark Driscoll. I think he's a very, too. yeah, he's a very charismatic, you know, compelling preacher. All these but... guys are well-spoken. I mean, if, if, if there's one thing that Calvinists all have is they're well spoken they can put together some phrases and some sentences and sound smart we're not taking that away from them i mean they really yeah. want that so hey if you guys are listening we're, we're giving you that because yeah. we know you really want that and you know that you're good at that so but yeah. anyway that's about all we're going to give you well i guess one thing that mark driscoll reminds me of that a lot a lot of uh, sorry our house dog is barking per usual a lot of them are like the heresy police yeah. <laughs> right. So, right. So you, uh, I remember a sermon that, uh, Mark Driscoll did about the shack that kind of yeah, illustrates oh, yeah. this the infamous shack rant. Yeah. They're just always on the prowl for heresy. And to them, like every, like heresy is hiding behind every corner for them. And these guys are heresy paranoid. Yeah, they are. Like, yeah. But and we're going to get into this idea of theological generosity too, in future episodes, right. which is the opposite of the hair being a heresy policeman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll leave it at that for now. We'll, we'll have many okay. more episodes. We'll probably dedicate whole episodes to like <laughs> to, to giving uh, kind of running commentary on some sermons that we really hate from people like this and stuff. But so we'll leave it at ben, that. For we now. don't hate. We don't hate Ben. We just strongly dislike. Oh, the sermons I hate. I don't hate the people. <laughs> the, the sermons can burn in hell. Hopefully, there's eternal torment for the sermons. <laughs> Redemption for the really, sermonizers. There, there really is a hell, but the only thing in there is Calvinist sermons just eternally burning. Yeah, it's just it's just a it's just a giant pile of cassette tapes of John MacArthur and Paul Washer and Mark Driscoll sermons. Yeah. Hey Ben, real quick, one more. I know we're gonna get it. We're we're gonna be ending soon, but just I, I'm out of curiosity. What is your thoughts on John Piper? Jesus doesn't love everybody the same way. Oh, the pipe miser. The pipe. Uh, again, I think he, you I, you smoke the pipe, don't you? I used to I used to smoke the pipe. I I even back in the day I even read his book on the future of justification, where he was kind of debating with N.T. Wright on that issue. So I oh, think wow. he's a, he's a really sharp guy. I think he I think he's probably the, the most good hearted of that lot. Agreed. The, the, the most sincere. But again, it gives me a headache listening to him. But yeah, sure. but he still gets into hardcore hyperventilating fire and brimstone. Everything is as witty as you could possibly imagine mode in a lot of his yeah. preaching. Yeah. yeah, the irony of a lot of these, these guys preaching is they with their words, they're trying to preach a big God. But what always ends up happening, at least to me, is God gets very in reality, gets very, very small. Yeah. Yeah, very turn inward on himself, just concerned with the manifestation of his own awesomeness and his little in-group club of friends that he's going to sit up on the cliff with and watch people burn and like, you know, nudge John Piper and be like, hey, get a load of that guy. Right? <laughs> he has fire coming out of his eyeballs. And then you hear all at once a bunch of men laughing together. <laughs>
because all the Calvinists are these men with suit patches oh, yeah. and elbows. So um, yeah, the, the, the Calvin the Calvinist God can be embodied by you know the the unnecessarily giant pickup truck that you see speeding in front of you on a highway. Very insecure dude, and it has the little uh, balls hanging on the on the back of the truck. Oh man, that that's yes. the, that, that's the Calvinist God blowing by the <laughs> non-elected traffic. Oh, what a great metaphor, man! I, oh yeah, oh yeah, and, and he has a lot of Trump stickers and stuff on it, and NRA <laughs> stuff. Oh, there's so many metaphors you could make for Calvinism. It's it's crazy. Oh man, what else, Ben? We hit everything. Is there anything else you, you want to get into? No, I think this topic is tapped. <laughs> Again, Calvinism it will pop up in the future. So, like this podcast is basically going to be like that game you can play in an arcade. You know, where you try to like bop the the moles or whatever coming up on the different holes. Calvinism yeah. is going to keep popping up holes randomly, and we'll have to you know hit it on its head. <laughs> No, true that. This isn't the end of the critique. This is just the the episode that will be fully dedicated to it. So yeah. So wrap, wrap this podcast up as a little present and uh, send it to your favorite Calvi and tell him happy holidays, happy Easter. <laughs> oh yeah, try to get this out to as many Calvinists as you possibly can. It will do them much good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, any any final thoughts, Ben, before we close out episode number two? Yeah, just be sure to provide a towel with the present so they can wipe off all the sweat that they've been profusely emitting throughout their typical Calvinist day. Oh, heck yeah, they definitely need that. There's a lot of sweat involved with Calvinists. <laughs> sweat everywhere. Um, oh, goodness. Anyway, so well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little longer than the introduction, but we had a lot to get into with Calvinism. There's a lot to say about it. So anyway, well, we thank you, Theologizers, for joining us for our second episode, technically, but our first episode really getting into the nitty gritty, the, the second, the first proper episode, I guess you could say. So we really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. And again, we can't wait to continue the podcast in the future episodes. So we'll say goodbye for now, Theologizers. Deuces, y'all. This is the Theo Bros Podcast. <laughs>